Welcome to the web supplement to our audio program for Patterns of Care Multiple Myeloma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We're about to review a number of other personal cases of faculty members, Drs. Irene Gobriel, Sagar Loneal, and Rafael Fonseca, beginning with a 61-year-old patient of Dr. Gobriel. On a routine workup, she was having some shoulder pain and x-rays were normal, and her doctor was overzealous and decided to check CBC and chemistry profile and found a little bit of a high protein level. Because of that, he did further workup and he found a serum protein electrophoresis that showed a small M-spike. So it was an IgM M-spike, and her IgM level was 313 milligrams per deciliter, so very, very low. Usually the normal is around 250 in our center. A bone marrow biopsy was done and she had 6% plasma cells. She had no CRAB criteria, which are the anemia, the lytic lesions, the renal failure, and the hypercalcemia. So by definition, she's less than 10% plasma cells, M-spike less than 3 grams. She was an IgM MGUS. And our first question when she was diagnosed, she, of course, went online and thought that she has myeloma and was very scared. So she came to us for a second opinion, and she wanted to know what exactly she should be doing. How did you think through her situation at that point? So the first thing when you look at the numbers, if she has an M-spike less than 3 grams, plasma cells less than 10%, and no symptoms or signs of disease, usually we classify those patients as IgM or as MGUS, monoclonal gamopsy of undetermined significance. And we now actually look at other factors like the light chain, even uh, smoldering myeloma now, we're starting to classify them as high-risk versus low-risk smoldering myeloma. And it's important to look at the light chain in those patients too. In this patient, she has very low M-spike, very low number of plasma cells, and her light chains were normal, so she really had none of the high-risk features for MGUS progression. If you even put everyone together and just use Bob Kyle's data from Mayo Clinic, where he followed patients in Olmsted County for years and years, we usually say it's a 1% chance of progression per year, so in 20 years, it's a 20% chance of progression. Again, this is if you want to put everyone together. If you look at the high-risk features or the high-risk ones, usually they progress a little bit faster than this. And can you talk about how you thought through the way you're going to manage or follow this patient and what you think about the other possibilities? So we usually follow their numbers every six months for the first year and then once a year thereafter. And we usually do the serum free light chain, of course, and the M-spike, check their blood counts, make sure that they're doing well, they don't have any new symptoms or signs. And so then what happened with the patient? So we continued to follow her, but interestingly, her IgM kept going up every time we follow her. So I started following her more closely because of her IgM increasing significantly. Again, she had no symptoms at all, but she was, of course, very worried with her IgM going up to 1220 milligrams per deciliter within just a couple of years. So what were you thinking at that point, And what do you think about the responses? So again, we should not treat her if she has no symptoms at all. We should definitely keep watching her more carefully. And now we're doing every three months follow-up, which is exactly what other people are doing. Now, whether we should repeat the skeletal survey or not, usually we do not repeat skeletal surveys every three months because it's too many times to repeat it. So we usually recommend doing it every year or every six months. And I see that most people just did the CBC, the M-protein, the serum free light chain every three months, and they did not do the skeletal survey. What about repeat bone marrow evaluation? We don't routinely do a lot of bone marrow biopsies. Again, just because of the comfort of the patients, I think following their M-spike and their light chain carefully will help us. If she develops anemia or any other signs, of course, we would do the bone marrow biopsy at that time. 
So what was your assessment of the situation at that point? We just continued watching her carefully. I did tell her that even if she had smoldering myeloma, which is the higher numbers, the 10% or the 3 grams protein, we still don't treat those patients. There are some studies now which were presented in ASH, high-risk smoldering myeloma patients, we treat them with Revlimid and Dex. This was the Spanish group from Dr. Matios. She presented Revdex versus placebo in patients with high-risk smoldering myeloma, and their progression to active myeloma was delayed as well as the bone lesions were delayed. Most of us have not applied this to the clinic yet. We are actually planning to do a lot of other studies for high-risk smoldering myeloma. But if it's not on a study, usually we just watch those patients carefully. And there is no data that says that, you know, if you're not watching them carefully, you will change the progression or the survival of those patients in any way. One thing that's important is this is an IgM, not an IgG. And that's important because IgM MGUS usually goes into Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia or lymphoma or CLL or amyloidosis and less likely to go into IgM myeloma. And IgM myeloma is actually a very rare entity, so it's not easy to find this. IgM MGUS will develop Waldenstrom, which is, again, less likely to develop lytic lesions, more likely to develop things like lymphadenopsis, splenomegaly. Again, if the IgM goes up too much, hyperviscosity. So it's a lymphoplasmocytic bone marrow and not plasma cells in the bone marrow. Now, how about your 58-year-old patient? Yeah. So this is an interesting case, and you'll see that a lot in the practice where patients come in with some renal insufficiency, a creatinine of 2.4, some mild anemia, could be, again, from the renal insufficiency or from something else. And, of course, their nephrologist does an SPEP, and they find that they have some, or they do a light chain or a urine protein electrophoresis, and they find some protein. So they send them to us saying, okay, this is now uh, multiple myeloma. And we try to figure out, well, is this renal insufficiency? from the hypertension, and this patient has anemia related to it, or does this patient really have active myeloma and you've now met criteria for CRAB, which is the renal insufficiency as well as the anemia. So it's very hard to differentiate those, especially if the calcium is normal and there are no lytic lesions in those patients. It makes it a hard thing to do. So one question is, would you order a serum-free light chain assay? And almost everybody would, including you. What was your thinking there? Yeah, again, serum-free light chains are very nice to follow, especially in someone who has a normal serum protein electrophoresis. So this could be a light chain myeloma. And you can see that the patient has Benz-Jones proteins. Again, the 24-hour urine protein electrophoresis will help you identify those Benz-Jones proteins and quantify them. But most of our patients have such a hard time doing that 24-hour urine. They either spill it, they don't bring it, they put it in the wrong bottle. So the serum-free light chain will help you at least measure those patients carefully. There are occasionally some discrepancies, but it's usually a very good marker to use in patients with light chain myeloma. So the answer is definitely yes, we should follow those patients with serum-free light chains. Now, we also posed the question about should this patient have a renal biopsy, which I know you didn't do, but actually the majority of investigators and about half the oncologists would have done a renal biopsy. What is your thinking? What do you think their thinking is? Yeah, so it's interesting because a renal biopsy can help you differentiate whether this is myeloma kidney disease, basically, or not. Now, we have to be careful because sometimes the pathologist may read it wrong, which is you may have those light chains circulating already in the circulation, and some of them are 
sticking near the glomeruli or near the vascular areas of those tubules. And you have to be very careful whether when you're staining for those kappa and lambda light chains, are they really deposited in the glomeruli or in the tubules? Is this really myeloma kidney disease? Or this is just a bystander circulating kappa and lambda light chain that are not affecting the kidneys. So we have to be very careful with those kidney biopsies. So again, as long as we know that the pathologist knows how to read them and not overread them, I think a kidney biopsy is perfectly fine. Actually, you did a kidney biopsy, right? Yeah. So can you take the case further in terms of what happened? Sure. So it was confirmed that this is light chain nephropathy, and the patient was treated with therapy bortezomib and dexamethasone, actually, in this patient. Now, adding lenalidomide could be used in patients with a creatinine of 2.4, as long as we're very careful, again, because lenalidomide is excreted in the kidneys, so the levels would be very high in someone who doesn't have normal kidney function. So we have to be just very careful with that dosing. Now, this patient, the renal function did not normalize after being treated. How often do you see that? How often do you see that it does get normalized? And is there any way to predict it? Yeah, especially if this is light chain myeloma, and the light chains are the ones causing the nephrotoxic effects. If you treat those patients fast enough and aggressive enough, we usually see normalization and coming back again to normal renal function. It all depends on how much damage you've done already to the kidneys and for how long does this go on. We've had patients even go on dialysis, and if they were treated aggressively and fast enough, they reverted and went back again to normal renal function. Again, if the damage happened for a long time, let's say, you know, they stayed like this with high light chains for a month or so, it's hard to go back to a normal renal function. They may reverse some of it, but sometimes they don't completely recover it. What about the issue of bisphosphonates in a patient like this with renal compromise? How do you approach it? And what do you think about how the investigators and docs in practice approached it? So most of us said that we will use pomidronate instead of zolindronic acid, and we would use a lower dose, give it at a longer time instead of the 90 minutes, and maybe less frequently. It looks like a lot of the doctors said reduce dose zolindronic acid and then increase it later on with renal function. Again, we'll just have to be careful. Most of us would prefer pamidronate in a case like this instead of zolindronic acid just because of the renal effects. And we also asked about the new bone-targeted agent, uh, rank ligand inhibitor denosumab. Yeah. What about that agent in patients with renal insufficiency? Is there some reason to maybe consider it more than a bisphosphonate? Correct, yes. So in these patients, there were no problems with renal insufficiency. It's not renally excreted. They had the same rates of osteonecrosis of the jaw from the data that I have seen in ASH. So I think this could potentially be a useful drug in cases like this. What about the issue of transplant in patients with renal insufficiency? If I read this correctly, it looks like you generally don't use transplant, and yet a lot of people do. Yeah, it's center-specific. So our center may be a little bit more conservative, and they do not do transplant in patients with renal insufficiency. This is a policy in our center, but, you know, just across the street in another center, they do. So we just refer our patients to the other center. As long as people are very careful with the melphalan and the post-transplant complications, I think that's perfectly fine. May, can you follow up to the present time with this patient? 
Yes, so this patient actually went on to have an excellent response to therapy. We actually went to lenalidomide, very low-dose lenalidomide maintenance in this patient just because at that time there was no data for Velcade maintenance and the patient had some mild neuropathy, so we didn't want to continue Velcade. Had a good response, but the renal function kept getting worse and worse, and after two years had to go on to receive dialysis. Again, there was no relapse in the myeloma. It was, you know, no plasma cells in the last bone marrow biopsy. And the question came to the point of, in a patient like this, where there is no evidence of disease left, would you transplant a patient kidney transplant or not? So can you talk a little bit more in terms of how you thought this through? Actually, the majority of the oncologists and a lot of the investigators, about a half of them, would not be thinking about kidney transplant in this situation. How did you think it through? Yeah, it's a very controversial thing, and we presented it several times. We actually had this patient see several transplant physicians. So the transplant group would consider a kidney transplant in someone who has evidence of a complete remission for at least six months or so. At least that's what they were saying. And the question would be, now, if you do a transplant in a patient like this and then give them immunosuppression, Would you induce myeloma to come back? And if the myeloma comes back, then it will damage the kidneys again. At the same time, you can look at the view of a healthy young patient who, you know, on dialysis is having a poor quality of life. And now we're seeing myeloma being controlled for years and years and median survival of some patients is above 10 years. So would you offer a transplant to someone like this as long as you're watching carefully that they do not have light chain going up again to the point of damaging the new kidneys? There were also some discussions about if you do a kidney transplant, would you do with it an auto-transplant, so try to induce even more response in this patient, or an allotransplant from the same donor? And in this case, you're trying to achieve a cure in myeloma by doing an allotransplant and at the same time do a kidney transplant from the same donor. So it was several discussions, and we actually had her referred to Mass General for some of those discussions and to our group at Brigham. After all of this discussion, the patient actually, with understanding the risks of an allotransplant, decided that she does not want to do this anymore. So what actually happened? So the patient continued on dialysis, preferred to do peritoneal dialysis instead of hemodialysis, and is on low-dose maintenance reflement and is doing very well. 